The following Sunday School session is part of our study of the I Am Statements of Jesus. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. This is a continuation of like last week. There's, there's so much in this chapter, it's, it's really unbelievable. This is a continuation of last week, and Jesus just keeps building and building and building and building on what he previously said. Um, this is, we're going to eventually get to this verse. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, just a quick review. This entire chapter 6 in the Gospel of John is basically about two things. It's about eating bread and believing unto eternal life. And it's all presented again in the shadow of the Passover. So that's really important to keep in the back of our minds. Jesus had the habit of piggybacking on Jewish institutions and feasts to make the point that they foreshadowed him. So he would like take them over. Hijack them, maybe that's a better term. <laughs> Okay, this is the outline of the rest of the chapter. Uh, the Jews grumble at him because Jesus said that he was the bread that came down out of heaven. Jesus reiterates that only those whom the Father draws can come to him. He said this before, remember that from last week. Jesus establishes his supremacy over Moses again. He did that last week, he's going to do that again. And... Uh, Jesus ups the ante by saying that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have eternal life. You don't have any life in you, actually. Well, um, that caused a lot of trouble. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, they were accused of being cannibals, early, <laughs> the early Christians. Yeah, some of the disciples leave and never, who may, walk with Jesus again. So that is one of, that's on the list from last week that I talked about. <laughs> It's a phatic negation. And then Peter finally starts to understand and confesses his belief, their belief in the Holy One of God, verse 69. So you can see we got a lot going on. Okay, <clears throat> therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? So this kind of freaks him out a little bit. Um, remember, they traveled there to see Jesus because they saw the signs that he had performed in verse 2 and verse 23 to 25. So at the very least, they knew of him, but maybe there were some people there from Nazareth, from his own hometown, that knew him. Yeah. Um, it is not unreasonable to assume that some people from Nazareth traveled to Capernaum to see him. And I looked it up on Google Maps, and it's a little over 50 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum. And remember, they were—they actually went on the boats looking for him, and then they, they couldn't find him. They came back. You know, they were looking for him. <laughs> they knew who he was. Uh, this is not the first time the, the Jewish people have grumbled. Uh, if you look <laughs> it up in the Old Testament, you'll see that, that they were—they had the Exodus. They came out of being slaves for 400 years, or maybe not slaves that entire time, but they came out of slavery. Uh, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? 
That's from Exodus 15, 23, and 24. Uh, would somebody like to read that one for me? Anybody? I will. <clears throat> then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's wait, hand. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you have to say it better. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt <clears throat> when, they, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. You have brought us, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. <laughs> the whole assembly with hunger. And there were others that I found, too, where they even extended it to say, you're going to starve us to death and our children and our livestock. I mean, yeah. they really went. But notice this. On the 15th day of the second month, do you remember what, last week when, they, when the exodus happened? Do you remember anybody? It's on the 15th day of the first month. Mm. So this is, a, this is 30 days later, and they're, really, they're already into it. Yeah, yeah. Grumbling. Reminds me of us. So uh, <laughs> the Old Testament people of Israel are reported to be grumbling a total of 22 times uh, in 18 different verses. Uh, this continues in the New Testament with an additional seven verses about grumbling. Um, but lest we get, you know, too haughty here, this is maybe this is why Paul reminded the Corinthians. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them grumbled, and were destroyed by the destroyer. 1 Corinthians 10. So Paul's reminding us here, and he's also reminding us here. Would somebody like to read that for me, please? Steve, you got that? And this to the Philippians. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Yeah, we're light and salt to the world, right? And then people are watching us, so we have to be careful not to grumble. That's one of the things we have to be careful about, because people are listening to our words and watching our actions. Therefore the Jews were, we're going to go back to the verse. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. That's verse 41. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? What is it they're really grumbling about? They see him as just a man, and they know his lineage in the sense of what village he came from and who his parents were, right. who his siblings were. So how he, how could he possibly be the son of God? Right. Well, he's, he's born. He's claiming deity. Yeah, he's claiming to come down out of heaven. You know, he's born yeah. just like the rest of us, right? That's what they think. But he's saying something completely opposite, and I think they actually understand what he's saying. Yeah. They just don't like it. You know, they're 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 very much opposed to it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, though, because the Old Testament is replete with this kind of stuff, that the Messiah is going to be this. Like when Jesus was in um, the synagogue that time, and he reads the, the scripture and says, this day this is fulfilled. And it was the passage about a light will appear to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they knew about it. Yeah. Right? 
Now they were looking for General Jesus, not, yeah. uh, yeah, not right. General, not General Jesus. Jesus, but General Jesus. <laughs> okay, they realized that the Lord denied that he was born like any other human being. Nowhere does Jesus say or imply that in reaching this conclusion they had misinterpreted his words. The inference is clear, therefore, that what Jesus taught here was the counterpart of complement of the doctrine of the virgin birth. Mm. One who is born of a virgin and who accordingly never had a human father in the ordinary sense of the term must have come down out of heaven. And this is uh, Henderson, William Henderson and Christemacher. I guess that's how you pronounce his name. So Jesus tells him, stop grumbling. <laughs> Quit your whining. Right? That's what he says. Stop, stop your whining. Uh, someone got that? Anybody? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Yeah, and also remember John 1.18? That, that brings that to mind as well. Now, Jesus restates what he had previously said in verses 37 to 39. That's, this is basically a restatement of this. So Jesus here restates what he said previously. All that the Father gives me will come to me. <coughs> And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Anybody got an idea what that is? Double, Double negative. negative. Emphatic negation, yeah. I will certainly not cast In out. In no wise, no, In no way, way, no, no way. It's impossible that I would cast them out. Yeah. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So that's pretty much the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. What are the main themes of these passages? God saves sinners, sinners don't save themselves, and if they're left to themselves, they won't be saved. Yes. <clears throat> Anything else? Eternally secure. Eternally secure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Any, anything else in here? The resurrection on the last day. On the last day? What about no one has seen the Father? Mm. That's kind of continuing on the theme of what he was just saying, you know, yeah. what they were grumbling. This is his response to their grumbling. They were grumbling about him, you know, saying, I come down from heaven. Well, this is his response. I mean, it's another statement, too, that makes him superior to Moses, because Moses had to be oh. hid in the cleft of the rock. And he's oh, saying, I saw oh, God. oh, 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 very good, yeah. very good. Do you see any other allusions to Moses in here? That's very good. That Moses came down from heaven, or came down from the mountain, Jesus came down from heaven, mm. and Moses didn't see God like you said. He had to, he, he couldn't see his face. He had to be protected. From he had to be protected from the glory, right? It's one of my favorite hymns. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, again, here is he's making he's one upping Moses because they're thinking about Moses. They're thinking about you know Passover. They're thinking about you know. The bread, the unleavened bread that they're going to be eating. This is all in the shadow of the Passover that this is taking place. I don't place. know if it's in this passage or some previous or after, but they make comments like, can he be the prophet? Yeah. And they're referring to what Moses said, a prophet like me will come. Yeah, and later on we'll see that they started really arguing amongst themselves over all of this. So Jesus is kind of ratcheting up the heat. 
It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Trying to figure out what he's talking about here. What, what does that mean? So, go back to the Old Testament. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. Isaiah fifty-four thirteen. Someone want to read this one for me? This is the covenant which I make uh, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor, and teach each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Yeah, I believe Jesus is referring back to these two passages. He doesn't directly quote from them, but he kind of paraphrases it, okay? Um, last week, in the list, I mentioned one of my favorite verses. Uh, it's from Hebrews 11. And it's, he basically, the author, the author of Hebrews, not Paul, uh, basically, <laughs> basically quotes this like word for word, right? And um, when he quotes it and he puts it in the Greek, guess what? This is emphatic negation again. I will remember their sins no more. Eric, Paul, Paul would have known that. Paul would have known that. Paul did do that too. That's true. I agree. So, <laughs> very good. Uh, okay, back to verses 45 and 46. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has learned, has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What is Jesus talking about? Now that we've looked at the Old Testament and sees kind of what, what is he what is he talking about? Those that that come have been regenerated, and they see because they've been regenerated, so they know they need to come to him. <clears throat> yeah, and Jim was talking earlier before everybody came about how the Lord was working on you. You know, back in your hippy dippy days, right? I, I, the Lord does that. He, I remember Him working on me as well, and we could probably all say the same thing. So he's revealing himself to us. He, uh, he, he actually, I believe we have to have, be raised again. I mean, we have to be raised from death into life before we can even see the kingdom of God. That's Amen. what Jesus told Nicodemus. So there has to be a regeneration at some point. Yeah. We have to be made alive because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Irresistible so, grace. Irresistible grace. Yes, thank you. Okay, the absolute character of the cooperation between father and son, which in turn is based upon unity of essence, is stressed one more, once more, as in so many other passages in this gospel. He who listens to the father, not merely in the outward sense, but also, but so that he actually learns of him, comes to the son. Will come to me. Such a person will embrace Christ by a true and living faith. Again, we got Henderson and Christemarker. I believe that's what he's talking about. He's, he's telling them, he, he actually said it. If you, you know, if you believed in the Father, you, you would believe in me. Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, I put that in the brackets there, or the parentheses, I most solemnly assure you, that's what that means, he who believes has eternal life. Mm -hmm. This is the third truly, truly in this chapter. Okay? In the Greek, it is amen, amen. Uh, according to BDAG, it is a strong affirmation about what is being said. So anytime Jesus says, truly, truly, or truly I say unto you, 
He's saying, listen up, I'm about to tell you something pretty important. So pay attention. Uh, when you said the, the Greek is amen, I mean, that's amen. That's amen. Hmm. Yeah, I looked it up like uh, when Paul does some of his doxologies and at the end he says amen. That's that Greek word, amen. Hmm. So, but put together, truly, truly. So be it. So be it, yeah. And but when he puts it together like that, he's saying, listen up. I'm telling you something very important, pay attention. He says, I'm the bread of life. Hmm. Verse 48, that's again, ego ami. That's the I am that we were all focusing on when we when we started all this. Um, this I am is all through this chapter six. It's all over the place, and he says it the same way in the Greek. Ego ami, you know, whatever. And here he's saying, I am the bread of life. Verse forty-eight. Somebody want to read that one for me? Blessed, precious words are these: I am that which every sinner needs, and without which he will surely perish. I am the which alone can satisfy the soul and fill the aching void in the unregenerate heart. I am that because just as wheat is ground into flour and then subjected to the action of fire to fit it for human use, so I too have come down all the way from heaven to earth, have passed through the sufferings of death, and am now presented in the gospel to all that hunger for life. Yeah, that's A.W. Pink. So, yeah, he, for all of these reasons, he is the bread of life. Then he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. <laughs> this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that, I, he probably pointed to himself, this is the bread. I don't know that he did that, but I'm assuming that he did. This, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now Jesus begins to ratchet up the heat a little bit. <laughs> you know, this is going to be um, offensive to some people there. Certainly. Jesus is now looking ahead to his death on the cross. He is going to give his physical body and shed his own blood on the cross for the life of the world. Remember, this is in the shadow of the Passover. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. There's, there's bread in the Passover, and there's also a sacrificial lamb. So, two things. The fa and, and bitter herbs, right? The fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, but they died. The manna simply ministered to a temporal need. It fed their bodies, but it was not able to immortalize them. But those who eat the true bread shall not die. Those who appropriate Christ to themselves, those who satisfy their hearts by feeding on him, shall live forever. Not, of course, on earth, but with him in heaven. Again, A.W.P. Bet you're glad you're teaching on this side of the hall. <laughs> <laughs> Just ignore it. I used to work in a machine shop. There's a lot of noise going on. All right, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Vidag uh, says that this word is to engage in a heated dispute. No weapons, but it got pretty heated. Okay, he is, he is again, he's ramping this up a little bit to make his point. Yeah. What are they doing again? Well, they're taking him literally. Mm -hmm. He's speaking spiritually. They're taking him literally. Right. And uh, so that's what's riled him up. 
Yeah, and it causes all kinds of problems and arguments, right? All kinds of heated debates and discussions. So it's just like his conversation with Nicodemus, except that seems to have ended well. This one doesn't. <laughs> no, they get riled up. I, but they're being hyper-literalists. Yeah, but it doesn't say they came to blows, but, you know, the, 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 the Greek word there says it's a, it's a heated discussion. They misunderstood again, right? Alistair Begg says that misunderstandings are a feature of the Gospel of John. So it's something built into John, and John always brings up these misunderstandings, so it's a feature of him. And he gave some examples. Destroy this temple, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 19-20. What's that about? His death and, and resurrection. Yeah, what did he say to him? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. Yeah. And they were like, it's taken 46 <laughs> years to build this temple. How are you well, going to build externals. it? Up? The whole yeah. covenant is all about the externals. Yeah, how are we going to build this temple? How are you going to build this temple in three days? They were okay. He thought he was talking about that. And he had just cleansed the temple, right? Well, he, he says something uh, when he's talking to the disciples. He says, I speak to you in parables so they will not, not understand. understand. That's right. So there's more going on here than misunderstanding. These are, they are purposely these being are, excluded. These from aren't the parables, truth. though. These are, but he, he is right. No. He did say that. But yeah, these particular th- these things are parables, yeah. but they might as well be because yes. God has blinded their eyes, and they're not going to be able to. They're see. pictures yeah. that need to be understood spiritually. Right. Types and shadows. Uh, you must be born again. Three, three through four. You, you mentioned that. That's Nicodemus. How can a man enter back into his mother's womb? And Jesus said, "You are the leader of." Uh, Israel, and you don't understand this? You know? Um, By the way, definite article, the leader of Israel. Mm -hmm. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Uh, Chapter 4, 7 through 15, what's that about? That's the woman at the well, right? And she's like, this is a lot of work coming to get this water. I got to carry this back and forth all the time. You know, give me this water that I will never have to to thirst again. (laughs) He wasn't talking about physical water. He was talking about the water of life. He was talking about the spirit of God. He was talking about this new life. Okay. So I started looking up all the misunderstandings in John, right? There are way too many of them for the time we have here. (laughs) Alistair is right. They are a feature of the gospel of John. We could just go on and on. We can make a whole lesson just about that. So now Jesus really turns up the heat. (laughs) Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So I put a bunch of brackets and curly things and letters in there. So we'll try to understand that here in a minute. So can't you just see their heads exploding <laughs> when he said this? I mean, just boom. You know, if they weren't riled up before, they're definitely riled up now. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself, I scratched that out, will raise him up on the last day. I scratched it out because this is not actually the word is not there in the Greek. It's actually the same as, as above. So this is a, this this here is a reiteration of this here in verse 40. What we're seeing here is equivalence. Okay? Equivalence, you can say in math, if A equals B and B equals C, then we know that C equals A, right? This, these things are equivalent. It works in literature, it works in math, logic, that kind of stuff. 
Would anyone like to explain how that applies to these passages, the equivalents here? How, how are these two things equivalent, these two passages? Well, they end with the same result, right? So okay. though he's saying different words, they each end up with that person having eternal life. And so that's where I got B and B here. Yeah. So, okay, you're right. So he's saying that eating the flesh and drinking the blood is the same as uh, beholding the Son of God and believing in him. Right. So One here he's telling, he's already told them how to, how to, dis, to, to decipher what he's telling them. He's, given, he's telling them, hey, these are the same things. Eating my flesh and drinking my blood is the same as beholding the Son and believing on him. The result is the same. You get eternal life, and he's going to raise you up on the last day. So that's the equivalence that's going on here, but it goes right over their heads. It's almost like he's saying, let me skip the analogy, and I'm going to tell you straight up. Yeah, he actually starts with that. Yeah. Okay, so William and I were talking last week, and there's no way I could talk about these, this passage without talking about transubstantiation. Um, just can't, so... I looked it up because it's kind of complicated. It's it's kind of hard to understand. I'm not a Catholic, and I'm not ragging on my Catholic, you know, friends. But uh, the Council of Trent declared, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly His blood, His body that He was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine. There takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ of our Lord, and that the whole substance of the wine is, becomes the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. The appearance, the appearances, and this is where they kind of try to explain this, and this is where it becomes, I don't know, in my mind it becomes... Hard to understand. The appearance of bread and wine remain. So the bread and the wine still look like the bread and the wine. They look like it. They taste like it. They smell like it. But it's not bread and wine any longer, according to them. We know that by our senses, we can see, touch, and taste them. We digest them when we receive communion. After the consecration, they exist only by God's power. That's an illusion, best I could figure out. Nothing in the natural order supports them because their own proper substance is gone. So they're, they're not bread and wine any longer. They just look like it and taste like it and everything else. Uh, it has been changed into Christ's substance. They do not inhere in the substance of Christ, which is now really present. It is not strictly true to say that Christ in the Eucharist looks like bread and wine, it's the appearances of bread and wine that look like bread and wine. <laughs> so it's not, it's the appearances. Yeah. So they're really, you know, fine line distinctions here. <laughs> well, this, that's why they have to retain every fragment of it and put it in the remonstrance, right? Yes. A little glass case that holds whatever doesn't get consumed in the communion. That has to be preserved. And they were so worried about the wine spilling onto the beard that they withheld the cup from the congregation in many cases. Uh, the same God who originally gave the substance of bread power to support it, its appearance, keeps those appearances in being by supporting them himself. <laughs> so, 
And this is from uh, Catholic.com magazine. Substantiation for beginners. So uh, I thought that would be a good place for me. But in my opinion, this is this is what happens when you take something literally when it's meant to be taken figuratively. You know, like the Old Testament says, "All flesh is grass." Is it? No. Yes, it is. No, it is. No, it isn't. You know, um, that's something that's meant to be taken figuratively, and I. I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus is saying here, especially when he made that equivalence and saying you really have to believe. Yes? So a, a true miracle of transubstantiation was in John chapter 2 when Jesus transformed the water into wine. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it looked like wine and tasted like wine. Yeah, that was his first that miracle. That was a true miracle. That was a true, yeah. yes. And they, they brought that up. And I didn't include it in here, but yeah, you're right. That They actually, he changed the water into wine. And it didn't no longer taste like water. It was it was wine, it, it, but that was it didn't because didn't look like water. No, it didn't. It didn't look like water. And then what did what did they say? What did they what did the officiants uh, say? Uh, save the best you save the best wine for last. Normally we wait till everybody's drunk out of their gourd, and then you bring out the you know. So the what, stuff you had, the, the bad stuff, right? You brought, you saved the bad saved stuff. Saved the Lafitte for the end of the for night. the end of it. Yeah. And what's worse, though, if it can be worse, is that what they're saying is Christ is being sacrificed every time they do the mass, and they say in their documents that they're they're doing atonement. Yep. Because one bad thought leads to another yep. bad thought. Yep. Okay. Okay, here's this is from D.A. Carson, and he's talking about this. Moreover, the language of verses 40, or 53 to 54 is so completely unqualified that if its primary reference is to the Eucharist, we must conclude that the one thing necessary to eternal life is participation in the Lord's table. This interpretation, of course, actually contradicts the earlier parts of the discourse, not least verse 40, which we read earlier about believing. Mm-hmm. The only reasonable alternative is to understand these verses as a repetition of earlier truth, but now in metaphorical form. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, James White has a great book on Roman Catholicism where he takes this train of thought you're doing, and he goes through all of those things that the Jews took literally and showed that they were meant to be figuratively to lead right up to this. Right. Uh, A.W. Pink. I'm going to read this. This passage in John 6 is a favorite one with ritualists who understand it to refer to the Lord's Supper. But this is certainly a mistake, and not for the following reasons. First, the Lord's Supper had not been instituted when Christ delivered this discourse. Second, Christ was here addressing himself to unbelievers, and the Lord's Supper is for saints, not unregenerate sinners. Third, the eating and drinking here spoken of are in order to salvation, but eating and drinking at the Lord's table are for those who have been saved. A.W.P. I'm trying. Eugene, Eugene, don't you think that there, there, there is some connection? I don't think it's coincidental that he talked about his blood and his body, eating it. Oh. No, I'm not saying it's the same. Yes, there I is a connection. Argue that, yeah. But there's some some connection that is to be made there. Luther's, the importance of faith. Luther's consubstantiation in right. faith. Right. And going through the outward ritual of eating and drinking in the Lord's table is an outward, I've never thought of this till just this moment, it's an outward expression of what should be going on 
or have gone on already in, in the believer's heart. It's an outward expression of faith. Yeah. Just like when, when God required Moses and the Israelites to put the blood, right, at the Passover on the, mm-hmm. on the, around the door, door right, the doorpost, that was his expectation of faith so that they would not be killed, right? And then the next expectation <coughs> was, okay, you eat the Passover, and remember we talked about he did it for many, many years, so you're exactly, exactly right. There's something to it. It's an outward expression of our internal faith, of the life that God has already given to us. I mean, the, the, the words that he said, and we're going to hear them today when we do communion, <clears throat> that Paul recounted in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he said, this is my body that I gave to you to be broken, and this is my blood for the new covenant. Yeah, and that, that's where the Catholics and other ritualists assume this is my body, and yeah. it physically is my body, but I, I don't think that's what the Lord is saying. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. All right. Finally, we learn that spiritual appropriation provides eternal life. The real bread that came down from heaven was not manna, but the life of God's Son, but the life of God's Son given on our behalf. Eating the physical bread of the Old Testament ultimately led to death, but eating the spiritual bread of the New Testament, participating in Christ's death at Calvary, provides eternal life. He who eats my flesh... Speak to all the congregation of Israel. This is from Exodus. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, because they had to eat all of it, if it's too small, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are, to divide, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and you may take it from sheep or from goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation is to kill it at twilight. So they would bring the lamb as either their family or a group of families, and then they would be ritually uh, killed. Okay. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put... It on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat, they shall eat the flesh that same night, roast it with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at, uh, at all with water, but rather roast it with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until the morning, but whatever is left until morning, you shall burn with fire. So it has to be totally consumed. And this is from actual, the actual Exodus, way back in Exodus 12. But then later on they repeated this every time they did the Passover. And they celebrated it for, you know, like we said, a long, very long time. This was from Alistair Begg, and I thought this was really good. Would somebody like to read this to me or read it to us, please? Jesus is going to, I can see this without my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is going to do something for us on the day he dies, so that he can do something for us on the day we die. Isn't that profound? I mean, that is really, he is going to provide his flesh. He's going to die 
for our lives. He's going to die so that he, when we die, he can raise us up on the last day. And, uh, that's, I thought that was very profound. Um, these things, you know, I'm almost done. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled, they're grumbling again at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Then he said this. This is interesting. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to heaven where he was before? Some of them saw that. Uh, if the Spirit, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him uh, from the Father. He's reiterating that, reiterating that statement once again. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was the one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Any questions or comments on all of this? I mean, this is like the gospel wrapped up in this whole chapter. Um, there's a lot that we could have said, a lot more that we could have said. Um, it's in a pretty intense chapter. So thank you guys all for coming and listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this Sunday School session on the I Am Statements of Jesus. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.